Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thank you so much for listening to DNVR Biz. For the 95% of you that are listening to this through a mobile device, I would really appreciate it if you opened up that app right now and gave this a five-star review. It's the only way for this podcast to become more visible and reach more people. Thanks again. Welcome to another edition of DNVR Biz. Today we have on Mark Burzens. He is the founder and the visionary over at Little Pub Company, the largest bar and restaurant company here in Colorado. They own over 20 bars in the market. And the way that he's done it is really, really impressive. This isn't a big chain. This isn't this big conglomerate feeling thing. What they've done is they have purchased and or built these neighborhood pubs all throughout the metro that really identify with the neighborhood and many times run by the people from the neighborhood and really gives the people who run these a sense of ownership and kind of this freedom to operate the way that they think the bar should be run best. And it's it's really an incredible company, and they've had a big impact. It generates an enormous amount of revenue. And on top of that, he's written a book. Right now, he is shooting a movie that is starring Mira Sorvino. So Uh, He's really done some huge, amazing things and continues to. And this interview is going to walk you through all of that, plus a lot of the hardships that he's just experienced through COVID. And he was very honest about that, talked about things that he had to uh, shut down because of this, employees that were laid off, uh, really a lot of truth in this and, and a lot of knowledge in this. So this is a really great interview. Just to be totally transparent, Little Pub Company is the company that we partnered with here at the DNVR bar. This was Colfax Sports and Brew before it became the DNVR bar. And me and Mark, we talk about in this interview, we're having sushi one day, talking about business. And this was an idea that he proposed to me and then we kind of ran with it. So we're very close. I'm very close with Mark. And he was a longtime subscriber and we met years ago and have been building a relationship through then. So he's become a good friend of mine. And and our two companies are obviously working together now here at DNVR Bar. So really great person and a fantastic uh, partnership here. Let's jump to books right now. I'm still reading The Pilgrimage. Really incredible quote here. And I found this one to be really interesting because with Paulo Coelho, what I find is that he's really trying to speak to everybody. And sometimes I'll hear him use God. Sometimes I'll hear him use the universe. Sometimes I'll hear him use eternity. And if you read enough Paulo Coelho, you really understand what he's trying to get out there, trying to 
really speak to the individual and speak to the heart there. And this quote really caught my attention. It's a basic one, but one that when I broke down, I thought was really interesting. And he said, if we believe in God, we also have to believe that God is just. And I found that really interesting because I think that a lot of times as humans, what we do is we have a belief system and it's this thing that we keep at arm's reach and we believe it when it benefits us. We don't when it doesn't. And essentially what this is saying is if you believe in God, if you believe in these universal laws, if you believe in, I've talked about on this pod, this connectivity, whatever these things are, right? If you believe in this, then you believe that it's just. What does that do? Well, that creates accountability, right? That creates an ownership. If you believe in this quote, then what that means is you're stripping yourself from the ability to make excuses, right? Because if you're living in the world that's coded the way that you believe that it is by the people, by the person, by the universe that you believe that it is, then these outcomes were destined or designed by you or for you, right? Uh, or are predicated on what you did. And so anyway, tons of layers there, but such a small basic quote that I thought was so deep and, and super powerful. So pulled that one out today. Let's go to the stock market. Really fascinating development today in sports betting as Penn has passed DraftKings. Penn right now is at 3451, DraftKings 3347. Penn is up 18% right now. And this is big. We're going to see these two kind of battle this out, Penn and DraftKings, I think, for the top spot when it comes to uh, gaming. And, and I say that in betting. So essentially sports betting, as that becomes normalized and legalized throughout the country, these two are going to be going head to head for the first time ever. Penn is higher than DraftKings. Now, should be noticed, should be talked about here. Penn is more than just sports betting. Penn has casinos, but they did purchase Barstool recently, of course, and Dave Portnoy has a lot to do, and Barstool in general, Erica Nardini, has a lot to do with their driving up of the stock price here and the value of their company. Bitcoin, 920492. Uh, nothing exciting, but it is, uh, it is uh, where it always is. Let's jump to the interview here with the one and only Mark Burzins. Hey, yo, I'm going to be a tit-out. That's how my eyes can see. Victory is mine. Yeah, surprisingly, I've been laying, waiting for your next mistake. I put in work and watch my status escalate. Now I'm going to start collecting props, connecting plots, networking like a conference. Because the nonsense is yet to stop. Jake, shake me down. Haters want to take me down, break me down. Hey, what's going on, Mark? Thanks for the time, man. Appreciate you jumping on. Hey, Brandon. Good to catch up, buddy. So let's uh, jump right into the, the, the model here. Uh, what gave you the idea to create this model of single neighborhood bars that stand independent of one another instead of like a chain, like, like most people try to build? You know, it's, it's funny because it, it really sort of happened by accident. I had moved back to Colorado. I grew up here and I moved back to Colorado to get married. And I knew I needed to reinvent myself, find something to do. And I had come from the LA area where I lived in the beach cities. And you know, anyone who's been out to any of the beach cities in California knows there's lots of little bars because real estate's precious. 
lots of little bars and all those little beach communities that, you know, just a bartender and maybe a guy flipping a, a few burgers and really compact, efficient. And so uh, a neighborhood, first neighborhood I moved in was over kind of West Washington Park, Baker neighborhood. And they didn't really have outside of the Broadway bars, they really didn't have anything tucked in the neighborhood. And so my dad was riding his bike over to our house and he went right by this little space next to Carmine's on Penn. And he said, you know, there's a little corner space to be perfect for your little bar idea. And that was kind of the first one. And again, if you know anything about those beach bars, people are ferociously loyal to their little, you know, section of the beach. And so I knew Denver well enough to know that people are pretty proud of their neighborhoods. So not saying you couldn't do a chain, but most people, even back then, were kind of focused on, I want to eat local, I want to drink local. And so just sort of fell into it. And, and, and truth be told, the biggest worry we had was straying away from the dog theme because the first couple of places I built were dog themed and uh, Wyman's number five was my first non-dog themed place. And I was a little worried maybe dogs were the magic, so. <laughs> Do you have a perspective of the world and the, and the future that lines up with the way that you've built these or was this a, a bar thing? I mean, do you think that we're entering a time where we're going to see a lot more hyper-local, hyper-specific, non-large corporation chainy kind of things as we, as we advance in society? You know, I do. A number of years ago, a buddy of mine sent me a book that was called 113 Million Markets of One, and it was by a guy named Ross Honeywill. Yeah, you, you gave me that book. Uh, well, you, you recommended that book, actually. It's a fascinating book. Yeah, exactly. And so this guy already, oh, probably a decade ago, was speculating that through the last recession, there was a certain group of people that were sticking pretty loyally to their local coffee shop, even though McDonald's had cheaper coffee and were buying Patagonia gear while there was plenty of cheaper gear to be had online. And I sort of came to realize that the, the neighborhood bar, your neighborhood restaurants, those are really the next generation's Patagonias and, and Starbucks and whatnot. And that, so Markets of One had a huge influence on me. And, but it just was sheer good fortune that I didn't have a chain, that I had just sort of built a, a loosely knit group of independents. And yeah, I'd love to say I foresaw what was coming, but I didn't. You've done a good job of putting a team around you to run the business while you hammer down on vision and expansion and talent and a lot of these, uh, the, the front end things, I would say. Can you just walk us through that mindset a little bit? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that you hear in, especially the bar industry is, I mean, even people who don't know the bar industry say, oh, do you worry about theft all the time? Or are the bartenders, do you worry about bartenders robbing you blind? And people who worry about those things. And, and it's interesting because in our industry, our industry is really built on not trusting your frontline workers 
and even not trusting your managers. So, so many in the industry, you've got comp cards and you can't buy a drink without getting a swipe from the manager. You can't, can't do this, can't do that. And so I learned a long time ago, if you're having to actively manage your people in that way, you just hired the wrong people. So we, we sort of took the FedEx approach, which was, hey, our mission is good service. If you provide good service, you're gonna make a percentage of the guest check as tips. And I'm gonna make a percentage of the guest check as, as my, my profit. And so we're very aligned. And so I believe in hiring the best people you can and cutting them loose. And so our bar staff has access to the comp tab. Our bar staff has direct access to the safe, the inventory to everything. And so I think when you show that trust in your employees, you, it really begets trust back. And so uh, it was really revelatory to me. And so our, my managers are exactly the same way. Almost all my managers are bartenders that just work their butts off and that I knew and trusted. I'd way rather train someone to do inventory and do some management tasks than you know, then, then hire someone blindly and hope they're honest. You know, I totally agree. We're in very different, well, we're in the same exact industry, but on the, on, on, in one level together, right? And we'll get to that. But the media side of my, of my industry is obviously very different from yours, but I actually agree with that 100%. And I do the exact same thing. And, you know, I believe on the media side that you hire artists and creators and you put them in an environment to create the best art, the best content, and you give them whatever they need to do that and you get out of their way. And the more restriction, the more rules, the more you're there, the worse the stuff gets. And, you know, I, I saw this amazing documentary. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's, it's essentially about a record executive that since the 70s, whether it was, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire all the way through to like NWA in the 90s, all the way through to like Marilyn Manson to Dr. Dre, whatever genre, it didn't matter. He pretty much took these people in and put them in this environment, let them create their own labels, even under his label. And they just went crazy. And sometimes, you know, they created fan fever that was almost uncontrollable and almost broke out into, you know, into these, these crazy stories. But the, the moral of the whole story here is that he just stimulated these people in a, in a, in a way that they could grow beyond anything that they ever even knew that they could become, you know, and, and it had nothing to do with actually managing them. And I, that was always so inspiring to me. I think, I think when you manage people, you know, if you're the boss and you're hanging around, people are a little bit tense. And just like in your business, if, if you're a podcaster and you're hovering, they're, get, they're gonna be more nervous. They're not gonna be as relaxed. They're not gonna come off as genuine. A bartender is the exact same way. A bartender who's anxious and nervous is not gonna come across the customer with that same sincere, you know, relaxed manner. And so, yeah, it's a yeah. really, really interesting parallel. I, I, I want to take this one other area though, because I, I love that answer, but. I was actually talking more about the back end of your business, the business side, HR, the fact that you replaced yourself as CEO early on, you know, just this, this kind of 
the corporate side because you put together a terrific team to help you run and scale this business there. And it really seems like that was moves that were completely void of ego, if I'm just speaking about it from, from a third-party view. Yeah, you know, you're an athlete, I'm an athlete, and, and I think anyone who's been an athlete or former athlete knows that if you really, if, if your goal is to win, you better be coachable. And so I, I am smart enough to know that I don't know everything. And so I've, throughout the years, I've tried to read the best minds I can. I've tried to, to hire consultants here and there to try to keep my ego from making bad decisions. And, and it is difficult. You know, it's hard when someone tells you, hey, you're not ideally suited for that role or you need to step back and, and let your people take care of that, or, you know, you're micromanaging and you shouldn't. And I, I think that uh, I've always been coachable. And therefore, when, when I hear those things and I read, hey, uh, trust your people, I, I tend to go with the process and let it happen. And so, yeah, my, my people have an amazing amount of freedom. I don't, you know, I don't hold them to, hey, you need to work nine to five. I don't hold them to, hey, how many vacation days have you had? Uh, it, it's all about here's the job to do. And as long as they're getting the job done, it's all about the bottom line, baby. Right. Let's talk about this deal, DNVR and Little Pub Company. You know, this is one that's caught a lot of attention nationwide, even where people are just saying like, damn, this was a good idea. Wow, this, this really works. You have this you have this sports network that has developed into a lifestyle company and then they merge with a major player. I use the word merge lately, uh, but you know, they partner up with a, the major bar player in the market and together we put together a, a really cool bar and maybe one day uh, we'll actually be able to see a full capacity in it. But that's, that's for another podcast. But let's, why don't you just talk about that, what you saw and why you thought it was a good idea to work a deal out to get into business with DNVR. First off, like probably everyone who listens to this, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the DNVR podcast and the group and most specifically Avalanche, huge Avs fan. So I stumbled across the podcast just looking to go deeper into my, uh, my local hockey team. And so as we built out the, the bar on Colfax, we built a nice little neighborhood sports bar, but ultimately my manager was saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a Denver guy. I want to do Broncos. I want to do abs. I want to do nuggets, but really in some ways, every sports bar is a Bronco abs nuggets sports bar in Denver. There was nothing to really differentiate us. And so uh, I was thinking, what would be a unique take on this? What would be a way to make this the place to go and watch local sports? And, and of course, that pretty naturally led my thought process to DNVR does local sports better than anybody. And then I think I enticed you out to a, a sushi lunch and, and uh, <laughs> threw, threw the idea at you. And fortunately, you, you sort of took it and ran with it. And, and that was that. But I I love the idea of local. Again, it goes back to that markets one idea. How can you best serve your market? And, and you guys do it so well. Why not partner up with the best? 
Yeah, this is really interesting because um, now we've got a chance to, we lived, you know, digital before, it was all digital. And then we released merchandise and it was like, okay, so here's something people can feel and touch. That started doing well. And then we started doing watch parties and we actually started doing them, uh, our first ones at Ice House. And those did, they were okay to start. And then they started getting really good. And then at the end of 2019, we, we were doing these. And even beginning of 2020, we started doing really big ones. And we said, wow, there's something, something here. And so this was kind of the perfect culmination. We talk about internally here just how confident we were for the open of this, how cocky we were at times, you know, thinking after what we've just been through the last four months, some of the stuff that I remember us saying is just <laughs> sounds absolutely dumb now, just how absolutely positive we were that we were going to be, you know, name the adjective of scratching yourself on the back and calling yourself a superhero. And boy, we really got, got slammed down to a reality with this thing. And I, and I know you did too. Why don't you just start kind of talking about the damper that put on this and then carry that into little pub company and how you guys have, have tried to navigate that. I'm sure that you've seen those studies that say, you know, Hey, the best practice for your household is to set aside, you know, three months worth of expenses. So they, you know, if there's an emergency, you can cover your, your mortgage and kind of take care of all your all your shit and and you know so i i would always laugh at those things and think i can't believe there are people who don't have three months of you know the ability to withstand three months of of no income you never think that'll happen to your company you know you you think oh if i had to forego my salary i'd be fine yep just never think what if my company through no fault of my own in 12 hours went to zero revenue. So it was such a gut punch and it, it really had started a few days earlier. The opening of the DNVR bar was the Friday before St. Patrick's Day. And so it was, I wanna say it was the 13th. It was of, fr Friday the 13th, yeah. yeah it was. And, and so we were, I was so confident we are just gonna crush it. And, uh, and we had a, a good, a nice, really positive fun opening night but the the covid damper had already hit the yep. avalanche you know their uh their season had been suspended i believe the day before yep the nuggets uh, were the day NBA. before that yep. and so there was this cloud sort of hanging over opening night here you are my gosh we're getting ready to roll out uh, a dnvr themed bar and all of a sudden dnvr's lifeblood you know dry, dried up with ours. And so that weekend was just such a, uh, such a tough battle. I remember you coming to me and saying, what's the responsible thing to do here? We've got this COVID spread. They're urging people to be cautious about mingling in large groups. Should I even be promoting the bar right now? Is that irresponsible of me? And I can remember saying to you, I haven't even thought about it. You know, I, I, I truly had not even contemplated what if we had to shut down? Is it irresponsible to, to, to try to be busy? And, and of course, then just a couple of days later, governor came on and said, in advance of St. Patrick's Day, we're going to shut the whole industry down. And so it was really, it's as rough a thing as I've ever been through. 
I've had a very charmed life and having to walk in St. Patrick's Day morning to my to my staff and, and places that were decked out for St. Pat's and basically lay everybody off was, I mean, you know what it's like when you own, when you own your company, in a way you're the dad to everybody who works for you. And like a dad, people look at you as, hey, you're gonna take care of me, you're gonna look out for me, and you take pride in that. And I, there was absolutely nothing I could do. I felt helpless. It was a terrible, terrible feeling. And, and I've still got hundreds of employees that are still laid off. And so while that first week was the lowest point of my adult life, I find it hard to keep my chin up every morning. So thank God you guys are coming back. Gives me something to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly tough time. Incredibly tough time. You know, it's, it's one of those things that puts everything in perspective and in a different perspective, right? You, you gain perspective from it. And, you know, generally when attorneys and, you know, all these super careful people say this, what if, what if, what if, and, and people like me and you kind of roll our eyes and are like, okay, listen, we're, we're here to, you know, we're here to grow things and build things like get out of the damn way. This was like the, this was like kryptonite to us, you know, cause this was the ultimate what if that just came smashing down and crushing everything in its path, you know? Yeah. You, you, you certainly never thought what would happen if all of the major sports leagues and, and college sports yeah, that's right. were postponed indefinitely. That's never think that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Let's jump into the back to the scaling of this. I wonder what your opinion is and opinion and methodology, because I know you can't always get what you want. So what's your opinion and methodology when you're scaling bars or any kind of brick and mortar between owning buildings and renting buildings? Do you have any policies around that? An interesting thing, because I would say the fastest way to scale is to lease because restaurants are restaurants and bars are capital intensive. I all the time I talk to people who say, Oh, I've always dreamed of owning a bar. I've got this great idea. I look at their budget and immediately tell them, you need probably four times as much money as you've got set aside. And so especially on bar number one, almost impossible to own your own real estate. Along the way, we had the opportunity to buy real estate. And quite interestingly, the best part about owning my real estate is that that equity has allowed us to survive a lot of things. Arguably, it's allowed us to survive this COVID crush uh, because we have equity in our real estate. It keeps uh, our balance sheet a little more sound. But I think to really scale quickly, the solution is to lease and make sure you sign smart leases. I think long-term, if you wanna have a lot of exit, a lot of exit points, I think it's a great idea to circle back around and acquire your buildings. Something else I, I should mention, you know, and, and this is true, I think in most companies, the SBA is a pretty fantastic source of capital. Yeah. So if you can find, if you can find real estate, you can oftentimes build your upfront costs in and amortize it. If, you, if it's real estate involved too, the SBA will give you 20 year money 
and yeah. fully advertise the cost you're built. So that's probably the that's probably the ultimate smart way to get in the business. I didn't think yeah. to do it that way, but SBA is uh, you do need to have a little traction and a balance sheet in, in some books that you can walk in there with. But once you do. Yeah, the SBA is incredible. We built the, this off of the SBA early on. Let's, let's talk about money. It's the number one question I get. I, I, I'm convinced people would just want me to do a How to Raise Money podcast. You know, what's funny is that uh, <laughs> we talked about this yesterday with Luke, actually, is that the people who spend their most time raising money actually don't run the best businesses. So, you know, money is a huge pain in the ass. It's actually the number one thing I hate doing. I know that it's my job. So I've accepted it and I do it, but you know, I try to limit it to the absolute smallest portion of, of my time throughout the year. And if I can get through six, seven months without ever doing it, then I do. With that said, let's throw this to you. You run a lot more capital intensive you know, company than I do at this point. So how do you look at, at raising money, equity versus debt? You know, in the, in the early going, I, I did raise money and gave up equity. And that gets to be pretty challenging. You know, you end up serving a lot of, a lot of minority interests within that process. And then you get called on the carpet for decisions and everything else. So over the years, I sort of worked my way out of most of those arrangements, especially as I became more credit worthy, I started leaning on my bank more, but I, am invested in a number of other com companies. And I think that everybody's trying to raise money all the time, you know, it's, or it seems like that to me, especially if they're trying to scale their business. And there are so many interesting concepts. I think the toughest part is, and I know you go through this all the time, people are so inclined to be nice. And when people are trying to be nice, it means they don't just tell you no. Ugh. And so then you get the wrong impression, like, hey, I think they're interested. <laughs> yeah. And all they're really trying to do is be nice and not have to tell you no. And so I've actually gotten pretty good at just saying, I can't do it, or, you know, or I don't have the capital. I think there's a lot of guys, a lot of guys that don't want, uh, we we're talking about ego causing problems. There's a lot of guys whose ego get in the way of them saying, hey, I'm, I don't have any, ca I don't have any extra capital right now. Right, right, right. Hey, I just got my ass kicked. I can't, uh, can't yeah. throw in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my, my, my revenue has gone to zero. Yeah. Yeah. So it's safe to say that when it comes to raising capital for your particular business, you guys are definitely on the debt side of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Let's talk about brewing brewing your own beer. You did that. Uh, you know, the COVID actually hit, your personal brewery pretty hard, but I know that you still, uh, you know, are a believer in the beer business. So how does the beer business work? And then, you know, maybe just talk about brewing your own beer positives and, and negatives of that in your case. I think brewing your own beer, maybe next to owning your own bar, brewing your own beer is, is the second thing that most of your buddies will talk about. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, and I was probably like most of my buddies, I thought I'd love to brew my own beer. And on top of that, I have enough places I could brew my own beer and make my own market. So I often have been told that I'm an inferential thinker 
instead of an analytical thinker. You know, I kind of like a referee. I look at a couple pieces of evidence and I, I jump to my, I jump to my determination. And I had a chance to partner up with a really talented brewery, Good River Beer, about 18 months ago, and jumped at the chance. They started brewing some beer for me under my own label, which was called Rocky Mountain Sector, and they continued to brew Good River Beer and learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot. I thought I, I thought I could infer a lot about what the beer business was like, since I'm such a large uh, purveyor of beer, but I really had no idea. I had no idea how razor thin the margins are. I had no idea how difficult it is to get distribution. And of course, concurrent with doing all this, grocery stores came online and that that's really gonna transform the way beer is delivered over time in our state. So yeah, you wanna talk about never too old to learn. I think that was a little bonus MBA that I paid for for myself, an MBA in, uh, in the brewing business. And I'm sorry it didn't end well, you know, COVID, COVID really just put a fork in the whole endeavor. But, but I gotta tell you, it was so fun. And I continue to love to drink all kinds of beer, but I think I'm gonna let other people brew it and I'm just gonna buy it. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about the, was, I mean, was it pretty quick? Like this is, you know, uh, were these like no brainer decisions uh, when COVID hit and, and you had a couple weeks to determine what assets you were gonna try to keep alive and what assets you were gonna write off? in regards to businesses and investments and stuff like that? Or did you really have to sit down and, and crunch numbers and like how complicated was that, if at all? Oh gosh, you know, it, the crazy thing about it again was it happened so quickly. You know, the announcement came on a Monday afternoon and the next, and that night basically, you're out of business with no idea when they're gonna let you restart business. and. It just happened that I had been on a, on a conference call that the governor was on and the governor had said, we're gonna close the state down for at least 30 days. And when he said that, I just knew you would say 30 days if it was definitive, at least 30 days, man, it's gonna be more than 30 days. So I knew this thing was gonna drag on and I also was, was immediately aware of the fact that if our revenue went to zero, I was gonna have unfunded debts. Like most good operators, I have credit terms with my vendors. And so I knew that I had net 30 day terms hanging out there with, you know, as it turned out, $1,088,000 worth of debts that I was counting on paying out of cash flow over the next 30 days. Wow. That suddenly I was going to have zero cash flow. And so I had had my controller pull that number right away. And I thought, I'm going to have to come up with over a million dollars. And that doesn't even include the rest of payroll. The rest of payroll to have the senior team help shut this down. I mean, it was a, I just knew right away this is going to be massively expensive. And I had to save the mothership. And as it turned out, the mothership was Little Pub Company. 
not the brewery and not the other investments I had. And so I told everyone else, the other companies that, that I'm an active investor in, I had said, I, I have to protect the mothership. And right. so I pulled out of all those things and basically as abruptly as the, the rug was yanked out from under me. And it was, it would, that was a terrible thing to do as an ethical business person. I hated having to do that, but I had to start saving dollars from minute one. Let's go to your book. You wrote a book, Most Guys Are Losers and How to Find a Winner. This is dating wit and wisdom from your dad. So first off, why did you write that? You know, it, uh, it is a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also a little bit serious. I wrote it because three of my four children, uh, I, I was blessed with, with three daughters and a lot of, I think a lot of guys uh, that you grow up with laugh when you have daughters because they say, oh, this is payback because you dated your way through high school and college and now you're going to have to, you know, now you get to be the dad. And so I was, I was painfully aware of that as they got into their teenage years. And, and uh, on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, when you, when you employ a bunch of bartenders, it's like being a dad to hundreds of young people. Most bartenders are young and single, and we're about, you know, uh, we're about 50-50 men to women. And so it wasn't just lessons about dating that I saw on the other side of the bar, but particularly it was lessons about dating I saw on my staff side of the bar. And, and I think most guys, I think most guys will cop to when relationships really crater in the worst way. Most of the time, it's the guy's fault. And I don't, it's, a lot of people would say it's because men aren't built for monogamy. And so it takes incredible self-control to maintain that status. And I think that's probably fair. But, but how do you find the guy that's got that kind of discipline and self-control and and all the other things you want for your daughter. And so I, I especially, really- Especially at a young age, right? I mean, the yeah. older you get, then you're able to start saying like, okay, well, that, that would be dumb. <laughs> but when you're 17, uh, there's you usually not having that conversation with yourself. Yeah, no, you're not. But you know, once you get to college and that the book is really, was really written for my daughters as they headed off to college to say, keep your eyes open for the good guys. Because <laughs> most people who marry well, Find, you know, most women who marry well find a good man, you know, in their in their twenties, and that's it. If you find the right guy, you are sort of set for life, and I really believe that. And uh, and probably vice versa, but but yeah, yeah. In in the case of this book, yes, yeah, you're right. I just, I just think it's I I don't think I worry about my son. I think good men usually can find their way through to a good woman. I think for good women, it's harder to find a good man. I really do. I just think it's statistically much more challenging. And so, uh, so that was the purpose of the book was, look, I've seen these train wrecks firsthand. Here's the advice that I can't tell you to your face. And I never thought I'd get published. I sort of just wrote it as a bit of a, a love note to my daughters to say, Hey, dad cares more than anybody. And turned out a lot of women wanted to read, wanted to read about what a man had to say about his fellow man. How do you publish a book? How do you get one published? Uh, you know, everyone I think has one time or another thought, I should write a book. I can tell you when I updated my book to version two, 
a buddy of mine who was in tech said, don't go back to a publishing company. You should just self-publish through Amazon. You know, and he said, over half the books in the world are sold on Amazon.com. You can, you, you should take back the rights to your own book and, and just self-publish and keep the, you know, keep the Delta for yourself. And I got to tell you, once you've been on the Amazon platform, it was the most effortless process to publish my book on Amazon. It was 100 times easier than doing it through a publishing company. 100 times easier. It was so easy. I, I, I was kicking myself for not having figured it out, you know, the, in the years before. But anytime someone says they have an idea for a book, how can I go about publishing it? It's the first thing I tell them is the hardest thing now is writing the book. Publishing it is simple. You can hit a button on Amazon and you literally can have your book in your hands by the end of the week. It's pretty astonishing. So the book comes out, you sell some books, and then you decide, why don't we make a movie out of this? And then you start making a movie. Was it that simple? Did someone approach you? And, and what's that been like? Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, the story behind that is kind of funny. As you might imagine, when you're a bit of a troublemaker in college and, and even after college, and then you get married and you, and you, you end up writing a book like this, you just take you just take it from all your buddies who are like, oh, look what Burzens wrote. Oh, look at look at Mr. <laughs> look at Mr. Pure over there. And so I was taking it pretty good when that when I first published the book, I was getting a lot of guff. But the most fun thing was it was all my buddies' wives that really loved the book. So I heard all kinds of fun feedback from the wives and mothers around the horn. And so it was one of those wives handed it off to another Stanford buddy of mine who uh, was in the reality TV business out in LA. And, and she basically gave it to her husband and said, this should be a reality TV show. You should follow Mark Burzins around, establish that he's a good husband and a good dad. And then you follow him to the bars and let him point out all the losers. And I told him, I said, that sounds like a super fun idea, but my, I, I would go out of business. If, if all, all the guys who are drinking in my bars thought I was going to call them out, I would have no guys <laughs> in my bars. So I, I said, thanks, but it kind of became a thanks, but no thanks. And they followed up a couple more times with me. And out of one of those calls, there was a guy on the phone named Eric Houston, who had been a uh, film school kid when he was in college and he said you know i haven't written much since i was in college but i think you could do a meet the parents you know a meet the parents kind of what would it be like to meet the dad who wrote the book most guys are losers and so he actually flew to denver met met my family and and myself and and he actually did most of the heavy lifting i got to throw out funny ideas tell him what the bar business is like but he kind of wrote a, a real world account of, of what it would be like to come home and meet me. And so that's really the premise of the movie. I did not, uh, uh, I raised a little capital for the movie, which again, you're talking about raising money. Everyone wants to invest in your movie until you ask them to actually write the check. <laughs> but I was fortunate in that my partner and, and the guy who really did 
directed and wrote and produced this thing. Eric, he was the the killer app for me. So he he got the thing done and I did help get Andy Buckley cast. I don't know if you know Andy Buckley from The Office, but he was, cool. Stanford, he was a Stanford guy too. And so uh, he portrays me, which is super fun. And um, Mira Sorvino's in it. Some really terrific young stars. Uh, my right, my sidekick in the movie is played by uh, Keith David. I don't know if you remember Keith David. I remember from John Carpenter's The Thing as a kid. But uh, some amazing talented actors in it. And it's, I, we just submitted it for the Denver Film Festival. So hopefully we'll be seeing it in Denver this fall. When do you think it'll come out? That's what I was just going to ask. Okay, so you'll be, yeah, this fall. Yeah, hopefully. It's set the night before Thanksgiving is when yeah. the movie is set, which is the busiest bar day of the year. And so uh, the movie's set around that, and, and it has quite a bit of fun. It's a, it's a romantic comedy. It's a kick in the pants. I hope everybody loves it. That's awesome. Okay, let's go to the uh, quick sesh here. Three questions. First question the most important book to you? I would say the most important book I've read is that 113 million markets of one. Okay. Return to that one all the time. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Most underrated athlete of all time. Randy Gratishar. Ooh, Randy Gratishar. That's a great pick. Great pick. We actually are about to, we're about to have that signed jersey up here at the DNVR bar as soon as it gets back from the frame shop. I know that jersey well. Yeah, he's he is he's probably my all-time favorite. Last one would be the business or space that you're most excited about in the near future. You know, one of my daughters is in telehealth. She works for a an app developer and the that touches on that space. And I think that is gonna be with this COVID deal and everything else, I think that's gonna be the most transformed space in our country. And I'm excited about it on all fronts. You know, I have parents that are elderly. Uh, I'm excited for them to have better access uh, to quality healthcare and, and remote healthcare. I love the idea. There's nothing I hate more than going to the doctor. I love the idea as I enter my latter half of my life. I love the idea of being able to uh, just take care of business at home and I, I really think that's going to be the most transformed space moving forward. Awesome, man. Great stuff. Well, appreciate you coming on. Super helpful. A lot of awesome, lots, a lot of awesome tips here and a lot of re really great information. So I appreciate you making the time, man. Bud, thanks for having me. Love the show.